Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 62nd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is ISIS Attacks Paris, the Digital Investigation and Response. We have no guest today because, well, this is a topic near and dear to our hearts and our expertise. You may for the first time hear us shuffling papers as we work, but like a lot of journalists, what we have been doing is collecting all the information that we could. And today, for those of you, this is t- today is actually the 18th of November as we record, and today you have heard a great deal of news. But I want to start back at the beginning because I think a lot of people forgot just because it happened on Friday and because there was so much going on, they don't have in their minds the chronology of exactly what happened and when it happened on Friday. So let's let's talk about that a little. It's a setup to the story. The first explosion in Paris occurred outside the Stadium of France near Entrance D about 9.20 p.m. Moments later, a second explosion echoed inside the stadium. French President Francois Hollande was in the stadium watching the game and was safely evacuated. It was a miracle that he was there. If he had not been there, it might well have been true that the terrorists might have gotten into the stadium and the death toll might have been much higher. But as it was, security prevented any entry. At 9.25, two restaurants were entered. And the masked attackers killed 15 people at the restaurants Le Carillon and Le Petit Cambodge. Ten more people were seriously wounded. At 9.30, there was another explosion at the stadium. At 9.32 p.m., there were five people killed and eight others seriously wounded. And forgive me if I've mispronounced the name of the restaurant. My high school French has left me completely. 9.36 p.m. at La Belle Equip, another black vehicle arrived. Nineteen people were killed at that restaurant and nine more were seriously wounded. 9.40 at the Comptoir Voltaire, a suicide bomber blew himself up. Believe it or not, he didn't manage to kill anyone. Um, Then we go to 9.40 p.m. at Bataclan, where three attackers armed with assault weapons arrived in a black VW polo to the concert. And the band that was playing there that night was the United States band Eagles of Death Metal, which is an interesting name considering what happened. Uh, Eighty-nine people are killed. Gunmen fired upon people as they lay on the floor, killing them execution style. They entered pumping rifles and shouting, Allah Akbar. One patron said they were very calm, very determined, and fired randomly. It was a bloodbath, he said. The gunmen took members of the audience's hostage, and they regrouped them in front of the stage, and police later find most of the victims were there. At 9.53 p.m. near the stadium, a third blast occurred. The remains of a suicide bomber were subsequently discovered. At 12.20 a.m., there was a raid by the police, Upon the concert site, Bataclan, three terrorists were killed during the police counter-assault. One was killed by police gunfire and by the explosive he was wearing, and two others activated their suicide belts. 
The hostages fled at about 1.09. In addition to the 89 dead, police found several people injured. One concert patron said that the gunfire was so close it shook the walls, and he had been hiding for two hours in a very small room. The police told him not to look around as he emerged, but he looked everywhere, and he said there was blood everywhere. Even people alive were covered with blood. There was, especially on the ground, a lot of dead bodies and blood, and some people had been alive and had to stay there for several hours among the corpses, and they went out covered in blood. So it was rather an extraordinary night, and we learned about it in America primarily the next day, and there were a number of developments after that. Since that time, we've had two Air France flights that have been diverted because of bomb threats. No bombs were found. We've had two soccer games where the stadiums were evacuated. No bombs were found, but the threat might have been credible. We've had a great many calls of people making threats. Certainly, we have all been on heightened alert. As I said before, today is the 18th of November. There was a raid in Saint-Denis. Uh, overnight, it was a nighttime raid, and two people were killed in that raid. And we also had uh, some people who were arrested. And John is going to talk to you a little bit about how they found that. But we understand now that we have confirmation from French officials who cannot yet be identified that the mastermind behind the French attacks in Paris has been killed. In the raid this morning, French police commandos killed the suspected ringleader of the Paris attacks in a massive pre-dawn raid. This was according to two senior European intelligence officials after investigators followed leads that the fugitive militant was holed up north of the French capital and could be plotting another wave of violence. As I believe I said before, he was in Saint-Denis. His name is Abdel Hamid Abaoud. And because we know that the other people are in custody and that there were only two deaths, one of the dead was a woman. There were body parts when an entire floor had been exploded by the police outside. And so the assumption is that the other person who was killed was Mr. Abaoud. It is, it is hard to feel too much grief, I'm sorry to say, for him. Well, one of the things that we've, we heard very early on was how could something like this occur and nobody, absolutely nobody have any idea that it was about to happen. So now the whole argument about encrypted communication has come to the surface. Uh, the initial reports were that the attackers uh, planned this communications using encrypted uh, communications originally from uh, reported to come from using the PlayStation 4 network which was, it was later proven to not be true. Uh, and it just kind of goes to show you, uh, and there was a, a quote out of Newsweek, which, which says that, as the saying goes, a lie can run around the world before truth gets its pants on. And it <laughs> kind of happened here because three days earlier, there was a discussion going on where Belgium's interior minister, Jan Jambon, went on the record saying that the most difficult communications between terrorists to decrypt was via PS4. Um, that happened even before the Paris attacks happened. And the news media kind of misinterpreted that and then turned that into saying that uh, the PS4 network was being used by these terrorists in order to plan the attacks. And, and we now know that that's not true. 
it could potentially happen, but we have no evidence of it. Is that a correct, correct statement? That, that's correct. But but his statement occurred even before Paris. <laughs> correct. Paris, yes, Paris I happened. understand that. So, so they had, they had, they had quoted these uh, that these encrypted communications were being used, but it, it really doesn't matter. So now what's happened is that the government, our own government, even has gone back and says, "Geez, we need to have a backdoor for encryption again." Uh, and that whole argument that, that has been festering for months has, has raised its ugly head. And it's a bad idea. And a lot of the security professionals, and us included, have said it's a bad idea to, do, to, to build backdoors into encryption. And it really isn't going to help anything. Because if there's a backdoor to encryption for the good guys, the bad guys are going to find it as well at some point. And they'll have access to that. Or... Uh, as one official said, or one um, security professional said, it's it's like encryption whack-a-mole. So you build a backdoor into one system. Well, there's something else that they're going to use. And there's a lot of different products that are out there. And these guys are pretty smart. There's thought that they're using commercial grade, if you will, uh, in- encryption products. And there was even a, um, where was that here? There's an article posting where they identified the technology that uh, ISIS is using with a um, an actual, uh, the Wall Street Journal published a, a diagram showing uh, almost like a PowerPoint slide that showed the various products that are available. And these products in this column are the safest ones. And these over here are safe. And these are moderately safe. And these are unsafe. Uh, the unsafe being the WhatsApp of the world and, and WeChat and those kinds of things. And uh, moderately safe being iMessage and Facebook Messenger and that, those types of things. Apparently, there is evidence, though, that um, ISIS and a lot of the ISIS, maybe not necessarily in these uh, planning attacks, uh, use a product called Telegram, a commercial product, which does complete end-to-end encryption. And okay, that it, that works, that does that. I mean, I, I use a product called Signal on, on my phone, uh, which does complete end-to-end encryption. But it's really a, a bad idea. I love Bruce Schneier, right? We hear him uh, quote all the time, right, Sharon? He's one of our favorites. Bruce Schneier, who's a, a noted uh, computer security expert and uh, an encryption genius, uh, his quote, he agrees that it's bad to put these back doors in there. And he says, the bad guys are going to pick and choose whatever encryption products they want. You can't force terrorists to use Apple. So the government gets backdoor access to iMessage. Terrorists will just switch to something else. And that's very, very true. But there's also the the argument, too, that just because it's an encrypted data stream and you're going to protect the contents doesn't mean that there still isn't some intelligence that's associated with that communication screen. In order to move it from A to B, you have to understand or you have to know what the IP addresses are, you have to know what the user ID or, or something to route that message uh, through a network. Even though the contents are encrypted, the travel of that message, the metadata associated with that is still exposed so there's still the potential to find out what IP address they were using or what user ID. Uh, but even to use these end-to-end encryption mechanisms, you just don't divine this and wake up in the morning and say, oh, geez, I think I want to send an encrypted text message to uh, user ID Sharon164. They have no clue. So you have to have something to set up prior to this messaging occurring to establish at least a user ID, a phone number, a text number, or some sort of identifier in which you're going to be able to communicate with people. So there's a lot of other ways that the government and that these folks can use in order to to access this information and and this data flow. And even, 
Uh, there have been reports that that France's own technology isn't as good as the U.S. or as the U.K. in attacking these communication streams and analyzing them and gathering them all. And they've kind of changed the way they investigate. So they really aren't interested in dealing with the encrypted text messages or encrypted communication scheme. They're using real-world informants now. They're getting they're much more effective in getting intelligence that way and having people infiltrate different organizations in which to gain access to all these bad guys. It sounds a lot like the Cold War, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Go, going back to that that kind of black ops. Um, let me ask you a question, though, John. I understand that at the scene of the Paris attacks in a trash can, they found a cell phone. And I assume that by trolling through the metadata in that phone, that's where they discovered the probable addresses of some of the safe houses. Is that correct? That's one way. That's what some of the theories are. We don't know a lot of the details. Um, if they were able to access... That, well, first off, you know, what a fool to throw a cell phone away, right? Number, number one. But that also tells us, though, if they're able to analyze the phone, that the phone was not locked down. So potentially no pin, no swipe, no whatever, that they were able to, to access it. Uh, we know they, they did have some sort of content, I know, from the phone because yes, yes, one, of, one of the very last messages was something to the effect of, we're ready. Mm. So, yeah, you're right, though. You would get some sort of data from that phone. But again, as they have to be able to access it so it's not locked down. You know, it's not an encrypted form, uh, like an iPhone kind of thing, which they would not have been able to, to access. But that's, that's how they did get it. But the whole, the whole investigative way as to how they, they've walked through it, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, about the various sources of the electronic evidence that, that they've discovered as part of this whole attack. And I just think it's fascinating how fast they were able to react and the various pieces to put all these puzzle pieces together to, as you say, to show up at this, um, these addresses and, and create these raids and gather all this intelligence is just phenomenal. Well, when you think about it, it was over 150 raids in a very short amount of time, plus manning an attack on, on Syria, and that was uh, quick, very quickly done by the yes, French. Yes. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today our topic is ISIS Attacks Paris, the Digital Investigation and Response. I know, John, our listeners would be interested in anything more you have to say about the digital forensics uh, involved in this case to date. Well, certainly some of it we're guessing upon. Um, There are things that we do know uh, and and things that we don't know. Um, Getting back to the the surveillance thing and the encryption, right, that's been a big hotbed uh, of discussion now. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But France actually passed a new surveillance law in, in June after the, uh, the previous attacks that requires all the Internet service providers to install these black boxes on their network that monitors user activity and retains that data for two to four years. Okay, but what if it's encrypted data? That doesn't do you any darn good. So that's kind of 
kind of foolish. Legislators rewrote that last that section last month, and it's currently awaiting approval. So we don't know whether or not the storage time period or or what the actual collection of those foreign signals are, are going to be because the, the law was a little vague in that regard. But Britain is also considering similar legislation, uh, what they call the Snoopers Charter. And I wonder who makes these names up. Um, <laughs> but it's but the bill failed previous attempts. And, and uh, now they're talking because of the activity that's happened here. They're talking about reintroducing it again. But, you know, it's in the U.S. is harping about it again as well, you know, and, and building these back doors and collecting this, this data. But, but I think for the reality is that it's not because the data is encrypted or any of that stuff. They just got too damn much of it. There's, there's so much of this information. They can't filter the noise from the, from the real stuff that they want to keep. I mean, that's when, when we're talking about the communication scheme. Uh, themes anyway, but I thought was what was interesting though, and, and the BBC did an excellent article on this about the whole investigation and the, what was done and how they got to to where they are today, at least to a degree. They didn't give a lot of specifics, certainly, because this is an ongoing investigation. But after the uh, to start on the ground, as an example, the first thing that they do when they went to the crime scenes of what what you had described, Sharon, with the the killings and the uh, the cafes and those things. The first thing they do is they, they gather DNA and fingerprints, right? That's traditional police work. Then test the guns that they've got from the, the folks that they killed uh, for prints. And then uh, apparently, I didn't know this at the time, but apparently there was a dismembered finger from one of the attackers. So they also fingerprinted that as well. Then they, they match all of those up and they compare them to databases, not only internally within France, but worldwide. And I think it was, what was the news report yesterday? Uh, they gave the U.S. 20, I think, right? 20 sets of fingerprints after this, uh, the airplanes had, had been threatened. Mm-hmm. So they, and they, they weren't in the databases there. So, so they, they're using traditional means, and that's uh, the DNA evidence and trying to match those up against databases and, and fingerprints. Then the next step that they did was they, um, just like they did in the, in the Boston bombing events, is they asked the witnesses for any videos that they had. So any, any witness to the crimes, uh, because pretty darn much everybody's got a smartphone these days, and they're taking, a can- they're taking pictures, they're taking video, they're doing all this stuff. And that was, as you recall, that was tremendous help in the Boston bombing, right? The, the witness videos. Uh, and I think they also got, um, there were, of course, still cameras that were mounted in various buildings, et cetera. Yeah, I was going to say got, that, yep. They got all of those as well, and using facial, facial recognition yep. technologies with some of that. So the whole the whole CCTV because a lot of the EU has video everywhere. You know the UK certainly has a lot of it, but but yeah, using the facial recognition to to do that. They also have the same thing that we have here in the United States. Uh, probably not not as sophisticated as what they have in the United States, but the automatic the LPR is the license plate recognitions, the license plate readers that are gathering and watching all of these things around, so they're able to match those up against rental cars or sus- suspected vehicles or any of that that stuff. Mobile phones are a tremendous asset. If if they can find a mobile phone number or something where a conversation, let's say, that occurred between two suspects and they can identify one of those, basically it turns that mobile phone into a, into a personal tracker, personal GPS tracker, because now they can go to the telcos and based upon the serial number of that phone, because they can, it doesn't have to have GPS on, Right. Because right. the mobile phone right. has to connect to the cellular network, they can somewhat watch where this device is going and, and track. So that's another potential source of their, 
electronic evidence. But as we said earlier, after all these interviews and uh, looking at this kind of information, they, they developed enough information upon the suspect because they even put a picture, if you recall in the news, Sharon, a picture of the suspect they were looking for, the eighth guy. But then from talking with all these witnesses, that's how they came up with the addresses for these various uh, apartments and that kind of thing. So then they do these massive raids, right? Unannounced raids. And what the raids do is they produce other evidence. So as a result of the raids, they arrested a bunch of people. They've got weapons that are there. There's they got drugs. Oh, yeah. Electronics, too. Computers, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. So now they've got more electronic evidence that they can analyze. And as they run through that, now they try to correlate any of those communication screen. That's how they're, and I'm sure how they're finding out what software was used, right, to communicate. Uh, what different applications did they use? Those types of things. So those computer examinations, the, the digital forensic examiners of the electronic devices that they recovered from those raids, very, very busy people right now. <laughs> uh, and then another thing that they, that they do based upon what those, those computers are or whether they're laptops or tablets or any of that, you can analyze what the Wi-Fi networks are and what Wi-Fi networks did they previously connect to. And I know a lot of listeners, they probably don't even realize that, 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 that your computer is tracking that. And when you elect to, uh, you don't even have to say, you know, remember to connect or whatever the darn box says that, that you connect, connect automatically, I think is what the box says. You don't even have to check that. But any Wi-Fi network that you've been connected to is identified or based up, and the IP address that you previously had. So they can use that information to correlate and go back and say, ah, this was the cafe such and such, you know. Uh, and what date and time that they connected up to that. So now they can start to position people historically with where these devices were. So it's, it's just fascinating, I think, all the, the potential electronic evidence and, and how it's aiding in this investigation. And I think we're also interested in the social media aspect of this. It's it's kind of funny that this is a group, ISIL does not uh, believe in the modern world and rants against it, but it uses social media to convert people. It uses social media to spread its word. They have those grotesque YouTube videos, but this is all modern stuff. So they're using that uh, very extensively. And it, it's been, I, I guess it's comical a little bit to, to watch recently as Anonymous has started to get into the act, and Anonymous, uh, as a hacktivist group, uh, has not always been among our our favorite folks, I guess. But in a YouTube video that was seen more than two million times when I caught up with it, members of the group's Anonymous in the Guy Fox mask, which is a classic, uh, declared war on the Islamic State. Shortly after, it was the day after the terrorist group ISIL claimed responsibility for the attacks in, in Paris. And they called the attackers vermin and warned them to prepare for many cyber attacks. This, too, was in French. And as we've already established, my high school French is long gone. Uh, but the, a translation in SC Magazine, this was the translation. On Friday, 13 November, our country, France, was attacked in Paris for two hours by multiple terrorist attacks claimed by you, the Islamic State. These attacks cannot go unpunished. That's why anonymous activists from all over the world will hunt you down. Yes, you, the vermin who kill innocent victims. We will hunt you down like we did to those who carried out the attacks on Charlie Hebdo. So get ready for a massive reaction from Anonymous. Know that we will find you and we will never let up. We are going to launch the biggest ever operation against you. Expect very many cyber attacks. War is declared. Prepare yourselves. Know this. The French people are stronger than you and we will come out of this atrocity 
even stronger. Anonymous sends its condolences to the families of the victims. We are anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us. So those attacks have actually begun, and thousands of pro-Islamic state Twitter accounts have been taken down. Some were reported to Twitter by Anonymous. Reputedly, some 25,000 of those accounts were taken down by Twitter itself. There's also been attacks on the accounts by Anonymous. They've published a number of guides for those who want to join the Anonymous community. The first one, I, I it caught me uh, as a bit comical. It's called the Noob Guide, which I think means the Newbie Guide. Yeah, Newbie. Yep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was pretty sure that's what it meant. Yep, um, and it lingo and it basically it, it basically teaches you how to hack and it gives you access to cheap tools and tells you where they are etc cetera, etc cetera. and then to further make the situation colorful of course then we had isis come back and say how stupid uh anonymous were they called them idiots as a cyber war between the two group <laughs> heats up uh, which is it, it it is interesting that is the modern world but it's something that we have to watch some folks are very upset especially those who are investigating what happened in Paris, they are upset with Anonymous because as Anonymous has all of these websites and Twitter accounts, et cetera, removed, these were the very sites that they were watching in order to glean information. So to them, they are now being deprived of information. So Anonymous is a double-edged sword. It may be hurting ISIS, but it also might be hurting the, the government and, and the investigators. Uh, and, and I really don't know where there's a balance between that. I, I only know that they share the same objective in which in which I wish them well, but I don't know where there is a balance in all of that, and it's pretty hard to say, but Anonymous has been very strong. The group Anonymous, of course, is very loosely organized, but it's clear that the French members of Anonymous have taken the lead here, uh, and in fact, as you know, it was the French who first went in and did all those attacks uh, the day after uh, the, the Paris attacks, and, and I think there's going to be a sense by many around the world that the French can have the lead on this one in retaliation for for Paris. But I think what Anonymous may do is open some backdoor channels with uh, the investigators and with the governments, and they may indeed feed them information. Uh, and I think you told me how they might best do it, John. Do you want to repeat that? <laughs> yeah, but th there's another group too that's, that's helping out. But yeah, I, I could just envision one of these folks finding out where maybe some, some ISIS headquarters are or whatever, and then all of a sudden a mysterious email shows up in somebody's mailbox, you know, whether it's the French or it's the Pentagon or whatever, and, and the, the contents of the message will say something like, geez, perhaps you guys ought to consider testing one of your new uh, newfound super accurate missiles at these specific GPS coordinates. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I do think things like that will be shared if they come to light. And you, you shared with me, John, a story today. It was not from uh, the Paris attacks, but actually from several months ago where uh, a terrorist who is fundamentally a moron took a selfie of himself <laughs> in, yeah. in front of ISIS uh, headquarters in Syria. 22 hours later, the Air Force bombed it and, and decimated the building. Um, so we have idiots on all sides. Um, so I guess name calling is, is partially where we are here. But what, what strikes me about this story is that it morphs constantly, and I now have a lot of empathy for 
for the reporters on CNN who have to get up and say, you know what I told you two hours ago? That story has changed. (laughs) So as you're listening to this, indeed, the story may have changed. And we've already let Legal Talk Network know that if we need to update this podcast, we will do so. Um, But it does appear that the the guy who was in charge of organizing the attacks on Paris is now dead. And we too send our condolences to all of the families of the victims uh, and, and to the city of Paris itself. Yes, we do. Well, that does it for this edition of digital detectives. And remember you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at legaltalknetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's Digital Forensics Technology and Security Services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.